0: If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to John chapter 15? We're going to be looking at the first eight verses together. We were asked yesterday in the panel, what's the one thing that you would say has sustained you in missions and in ministry? And it's simply this the simplicity of just having Jesus. And I want to unpack that out of John 15 1 to 8. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Because of the last verse in John chapter 14 and the first verse of chapter 18, there is some debate on where this message was addressed. But the last verse of 14 indicates they went out from there, so most likely Jesus was in transit as he's sharing these most integral words to his disciples. And perhaps he walks by the Temple Mount where there was an engraving of the national symbol of Israel, which was a vine. Perhaps he's fingering a Maccabean coin, which also had that national vine as its symbol. And essentially what he is saying is, I am the true vine. Life is not found in being religious. Life is not found in being political. Life is not found in being financially respectable. I am life, and you have to come to me for that life because I am the true vine." He goes on to say that the father is the vine dresser. It's an interesting word, some of you will have in your translations farmer. In Greek, it's actually gyrgos which is the word for George. So if your name is George, this is where it comes from in the text. I am life, I am the true fine, and my father is George the farmer. And the implication is somebody that's down there in the dirt, and there's dirt underneath his fingernails, and he's involved in the very nitty-gritty of life. And I just want to apply it this way fundamentally, that God, George, the divine farmer, is sovereignly good in everything that he does and everything that he allows. And if you can come to terms with this early on in your life you are indestructible neither rape nor poverty nor disappointment can harm you if you know that almighty God is down there in the nitty-gritty of the dirt of your life and everything that comes passes through his hands that he's sovereignly good in all that he does and all that he ordains you can endure anything nothing can shake you you will be unshakable if you can come to terms with this Bonhoeffer said that God is both the origin and the goal of all of our distress and that's theologically, emotionally difficult to handle but if you can get there, nothing can shake you. Jesus is the true life, it's not anywhere else and the father, George, is the vine dresser, the farmer right down there in the details of everything that has happened or will happen to you. In verse 2, it goes on to say that the branch in him, the branch in Jesus, that does not bear fruit, he will take away. It's not what you think, most likely, because the Greek helps us here as well. The word for take away is actually the word ero. And the word for bearing fruit is the word karpos. Karpos means fruit, that which is harvested. And D.A. Carson says, in this missiological gospel, John is explicitly referring to making disciples. In other parts of the scriptures, fruit refers to character and the things that the Lord works in us. But in this passage, it's referring to the disciples that you will make if you abide in Jesus. And what the text is saying is this. Ero is the Greek word to lift up. Aerogram. Aeroplane. And when Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, it's not saying that he'll be taken away, cast off, as some of the translations put it. But this is what's happening. He's going to lift you up. Imagine a vineyard. And you know that there is this trestle. There are these posts in the ground and then there's strings strung across that the vine can grow on. And what can happen is, as that vine grows, sometimes a branch will dip down into the trough where there's irrigation, down into the mud, get covered with that mud or in the shade, and so photosynthesis cannot happen, so life cannot come forth. And what the vine dresser will do, what God the farmer will do, will lovingly come to that branch, and he doesn't take it away, but he lifts it up out of the mud, and he ties it to the trestle so that it can receive divine life, so that it can make disciples. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you are not making disciples, and that is his intention for you, go into all the world and make disciples, but if that's not happening, he is not going to discard you, but what he wants to do is to lift you up and tie you to the trestle of his provision so that you can receive the divine sunshine of his love so that you can make disciples. Are you not bearing disciples today? Can you not point directly to a disciple that you are making? Well, God's intention for you is to lift you up into His presence to receive His light, so that it can emanate out of you, so that you can make disciples. Second part of the verse links us to a second branch. It says, "Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit." Again, the Greek helps us. This word "prune" is kathairo. It literally means washing. It is the same word used when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And the implication is simply this. Are you making disciples? The good news for you is that God is going to take you through a process of washing through difficulty so that you can make more disciples. I mentioned yesterday the life that comes on the other side of death. I mentioned that you cannot crucify yourself. Indulge me with this fanciful illustration, if you will. Just try and picture a self-crucifixion. You have to drive a nail through your own feet. Who in their own strength can really do that? You'd have to drive another spike as you hold it through your other hand. Probably superhuman strength might allow you to do that, but even, and it's unlikely, most of us would wimp out in that process, but even in the unlikely event that you got there, who crucifies the last hand? It's physically impossible. And this is why we talked about Jesus handing the hammer to those who are near. But let me take the illustration one step further. What we're saying is, what the text is saying is, are you making disciples good? Jesus is going to prune you. He's going to wash you through a process of difficulty that is the death to self life so that his resurrection power can manifest on the other side. But he's going to use those who are near to do it. And here's how we usually respond. Picture with me Jesus on the Villa della Rosa. He's carrying the cross. And what does it do to that mental image of you as as Jesus carries the cross, he spits on people? Or as he's hanging on Golgotha's tree, he begins to curse the ones that put him there. Spoils the whole redemption narrative, doesn't it? But don't you see that's exactly what you do? That the ones that the Lord uses to prune and wash you and make you like himself so his life can be manifest, you spit on them. I spit on them. We curse them. We resent them, we complain, we're bitter, we're angry, we despise that. And what the Lord wants you to do, and it can only be done by his spirit, is to say, oh, pound away at my flesh. I will not spit on you, I will not resent you, I will not fight you, I will not condemn you, but I will thank you and bless you because you're knocking the stuffing of myself out of me that the life of Jesus might be manifest in my mortal body. Are you making disciples? Wonderful. Jesus wants to make more. But the way to that is kathairo, washing through difficulty at the hands of others. The next verse says this, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. I love how the scripture talks about the washing of the water of the word and then in Titus, how the spirit also washes us. I want to be honest, about five years ago, I went through an experience where I was having the most demonic dreams for an extended period of time. For about five years, every single night, I would have these wicked, terrible dreams. And in my dreams, I dreamt every vile thing. I dreamt I committed adultery. I dreamt I raped women. I dreamt I abused children. I dreamt homosexual acts. If it's wicked out there sexually, I dreamt it. If it's wicked out there in violence, I dreamt it. If there's some twistedness or bent, Thing out there, I dreamt it. It was in my mind night after night after night, and it was emotionally, it was spiritually, it was physically exhausting. And I'm just being transparent because maybe you have or will experience similar things where there's all kinds of filth in your mind over and over and over again. You didn't seek it out, but for whatever reason, it's invading the sanctity of your being. And the way that the devil works is he'll bombard you with something and try and get you to believe the lie. And it was so devastating and it was so repeated that I began to give in to that lie and think, am I an adulterer? Am I a pedophile? Am I a homosexual? Because it was so unrelenting every night all night long and I would wake up emotionally physically spiritually devastated and there was one thing that saved me I would stumble to my abiding place and I would open the word of God and I would read copious amounts of scripture and it was the only thing that delivered me Because the washing of the water of the word, the truth of the character of God, the truth of who I am in Christ was the only thing that could knock that stuff out of my mind and remind me who I really was and who God was. It was the only thing that delivered me. I had to stand under the washing of the water of the word. And as I did that, it washed that junk out of me and I knew that I was a child of God. I knew those thoughts were not mine. I knew they were from the pit of hell and I could resist them in the name of Jesus. And from that place, I could get up and go out into my day because I'm already clean by the washing of the water of the word. And the washing of the spirit, I need relief and I needed relief from my own mind. For me, praying in tongues, praying in the Spirit is not a theological exercise in argument or finesse. I cannot deal with the weight of my own mind and my own thoughts. And sometimes I just need the Spirit to pray through me. And the only way to get those junky thoughts out of my head is to pray in the Spirit and let the Holy Spirit cleanse my mind and my heart and my being. And when I come under the authority of the Word and let it wash me, and when I pray in the Spirit and let it cleanse me, I can go out in the world already clean. And this is what Jesus wants to do for us. Now we come to the heart of the text, verse four and verse five. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This word is very interesting. It's menno in Greek, the word for abide. From it we get the Latin "mansio," which is where we get the, the English mansion. It's your house. It's where you spend your time. It's where you dwell. There's other aspects of it, but essential. We cannot remove the time component. You want to abide in Jesus? It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time lingering in the presence of the Lord. And we understand abiding to be both a discipline and a state, where we On the discipline side, morning by morning, extended time, as I just talked about, under the authority of the word, in the spirit, being renewed in heart and mind, that's true, but it's also the state of abiding all day long, learning to abide in Jesus. And what the text is saying here is, you can't do anything. You can't teach, you can't administer You can't play professional sports or be a musician or a nurse or an educator or be in politics. You can't do anything. You can't change the world unless you spend a lot of time with Jesus. You don't think in your own theology, I'm sure, that the financial tithe is legalistic. And we all admit that legalism is the kiss of demonic death but you know that every resource you have belongs to God and you return a portion of what's already his and he blesses what remains, I just want to submit to you that a more precious resource than your money is your time. And if it's true for your finances and your resources, is it not true for your time? And should we not be people who abide in Jesus and spend extravagant time in the presence of Jesus because the text tells us without that, we can do nothing. George Mueller, you know him, was a German rationalist. He went originally after he was saved to England to reach Jews. He's famous for starting orphanages. Now, he had an altruistic love for children, but he didn't start orphanages for the orphan's sake. If you read his biography, he wanted to do something so audacious that the people of God would see that God does impossible things. Kind of like the Cubs winning the World Series. LAUGHTER <laughs> And so he started these orphanages to show local people and believers that God can do the extraordinary things. And God provided in amazing ways at the latter end of his life. He traveled the world. He went into all these countries. He ministered to all kinds of Christians and missionaries. At the end of that, 80 years old, he's addressing students like you. His old withered frame is sitting in a chair and a student asks him, what's the secret? and he bent his limbs out of that chair and he got down on that pulpit in that platform in front of the students he just knelt down like this after an amazing life of incredible fruit and he just said to the students this this is my secret you know the story perhaps of hudson taylor and how he founded the china inland mission did you know that his first term was a failure he had an emotional breakdown and he came back to the united kingdom and had to learn to be put all back together again. He learned to abide in Jesus. He went back, he started going to bed early so he could get up at five o'clock in the morning and spend two hours praying and reading his Bible. And a colleague testified this. He said, he's a different man. Now when he speaks, there's power. Now when he enters a conversation, the atmosphere changes. Now when he evangelizes, there's anointing. And the colleague says it is the exchanged life that we see upon him after he learned to abide in Jesus. And he's referencing that famous verse in Isaiah 40, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. In the Septuagint, the word wait on the Lord is menno, abide. Those that abide in the Lord, those that spend a lot of time with Jesus, they will, and the word in Hebrew for renew is exchange, they will exchange their strength. And what the text is telling us is, if you spend a lot of time with Jesus and Taylor experience this, you get to exchange strength with Him. You give to him your limited, pitiful resources, your limited energy, your limited creativity, and in that divine exchange, he gives you his unimaginable power. Who wouldn't want that exchange? And this is what we are called to. Jesus says, abide in me, spend a lot of time with me, and I'll swap strength with you. I'll take your weakness, and I'll give you my divine energy. I will give you my unlimited power. I will give you creativity. I will give you resource. I will give you patience. I will give you endurance. I will give you insight. I will give you discernment. I will give you the power of the Holy Spirit that you can go into all the world and make disciples, but you've got to abide in me and I in you. It's reciprocal. Trotter, famous missionary to Algeria, started the Algeria Missions Band. She understood this. And every morning she would go out into her garden and she would abide with Jesus for about two hours, read her Bible, pray. She was an artist, so she would paint. And one day she's sitting in her garden in Algiers and she's there so long as she's abiding in Jesus, she watches a dandelion follow the ark of the sun as the sun traverses the sky. And she sees it actually turn and follow it. So she puts that down in a little poetic stanza, sends it to the Keswick Convention, the big missions convention of the day, and they take her little poetry and they put it to words. And this is where we get the chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Even as that dandelion abided with the sun, we are to abide with Jesus. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. What are those things of earth? You might think money, sex, power, a litany of other things, you'd be right. But let me give you another thing of earth. Missions. Will there be missions in heaven? Will there be evangelism in heaven? Even missions, even the unreached, even ministry, even evangelism, even teaching, even studying, even athletics, whatever it might be, in the light of Jesus, needs to grow strangely dim. Why? so we get that exchange life, so we make disciples. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. This is so critical, it's a double negative in the Greek. It's essentially this, you just can't do nothing if you don't abide with Jesus, but we're so thick-headed. We are so dense, we just don't get it. Let me go on to verse six. There's the third branch in the text. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. This again seems extreme, and it is stringent. The word here is ballo, to be cast or thrown. Ballo is actually this. It's to release in the Greek. It's to release. Going back to viticulture, if you look at that branch that disengages from the vine, the life-giving sap of the vine, perhaps you've seen it. It dries up. And as it dries, it crinkles. It shrivels. You can't make furniture out of it. You can't reattach it to the vine. It just removes itself. And the only thing left for the vine dresser to do is to collect it and to release it into the fire you see Jesus is not going to force you to abide he's going to invite you to that and if in your own folly you refuse that invitation in the very practice of how you live your life there is only one future for you you're gonna dry up you're gonna wither and then there's nothing God can do with you but to be released into your own self marginalization and I want to speak to faculty here as well as students and all future ministers It doesn't necessarily mean that you're removed from the ministry or your location, but it just means you live a powerless life and have an ineffective ministry for the rest of your days. And this is the sadness of this text. You can go through all the motions. You can look all shiny and blinky on the outside. You can perform to your heart's content, but there is no divine life to make disciples. And you will get to the end of your life And the ministry that you created will crumble and you'll go through all of this pain and heartache. But there's no legacy. There's no disciples making disciples in your train. Oh, Jesus, protect us from that. Protect us from that destiny where we, because of our own folly, have marginalized ourselves. And there's nothing for us to do but to be released and discarded into the fire. In Luke chapter 2, when Simeon receives the Lord Jesus and he says this one is destined for the rise and fall of many in Israel, you know that text? It's the words Ero and Balo. Exactly from this passage. Jesus is the destiny of many who will be lifted up into the sunshine of God's love and others who will be released because they marginalize themselves by not abiding in him. Let me go on and wrap this up. In verse 7 it says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Would you like to have your prayers answered? The best way to do that is to pray the thoughts of God. The best way of that is to pray the scripture. And I want to make an appeal. If you're a musician, stop writing your own words and take scripture and put it to music. And if you're a preacher, stop coming up with like clever little things. Just get back to scripture and whatever is your heart, and whatever is your passion, just get back to scripture. If you're an intercessor, stop praying your petty little self-indulgent prayers, and pray scripture. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) 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 Why? I mean, we're pragmatic here. Then the Lord answers those prayers. The last verse is this. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Remember I talked yesterday about the shining face of Moses and the powerful shadow of Peter and light coming out of the back of that Yemeni disciple? We don't see that a lot, do we? Don't experience it a lot. But how do we get there? We abide in Jesus. And that word glory, in the Old Testament chavad, is the heaviness, in our terminology, the gravitas of God. You want the gravitas of God around you where you change the atmosphere of anything you enter or participate in? How do you get there? How do you get to that glorified state? By abiding in Jesus, spending a lot of time with him. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Again, as we did yesterday, without any fanfare or emotion, I just want to make this appeal. If there's something that the Holy Spirit has stirred in your heart that you would say, I want to grow in my abiding in Jesus so I can make disciples and bear the gravitas of God wherever I go, would you just seal that right now by coming to the altars and let's pray. Anybody here, that's your heart and your desire. Would you come and pray? Let's make this a sanctuary indeed. Just quiet, nobody stirring, nobody moving. This is your heart. I want to abide in Jesus for the life of God that will be manifested in my mortal body. I need to grow in this. I need to deepen in this. I want to bear the glory of Jesus. Would you come and let's just pray and ask, Oh, Jesus, I love you. I want the simplicity of just having you. I want to make disciples in obedience to that great commission. Would you help me now? Would you teach me, Jesus? Help me to abide. Where you're sitting, if you want to stay, that's fine. But would you just make that an altar? And if you don't have that desire, would you just ask Jesus to give it to you? Can you do that? Let's close our eyes and let's wait before the Lord.